Welcome to this edition of the Musician Saving Our Home Planet podcast. I'm your host, John Guggenheim. Musician Saving Our Home Planet's mission is to educate and raise awareness about issues concerning our environment. One of the key issues in the last presidential election was the wall along America's southern border. This episode's guest, Sergio Avila, is a wildlife biologist and an outdoors coordinator for the Sierra Club in the Southwest region. He will share his experiences as a researcher along the southern border and the environmental and cultural impacts of the wall. We'll also discuss the importance of indigenous knowledge to environmental issues and his efforts to make our public lands accessible to all people. It is my honor to welcome and introduce you to Sergio Avila. Thank you, John. Bienvenido. Gracias. Bienvenido a Tucson. Pleasure to be in Tucson. We're, we're glad you're here to share stories and, and share with everybody else. So how did you find yourself uh, in the career of big, big cat research? Um, I have the privilege of uh, having had a dream as a kid that came reality. As a kid, I growing up in Mexico, I was born in Mexico City, uh, and growing up in Mexico, running around in the desert, um, I always wanted to be a biologist, and I wanted to be a big cat biologist and scientist. And, you know, it sounds like a dream, but four decades later, I realized that there was a lot of work, a lot of efforts, and a lot of privilege and advantages for me to achieve that dream. Uh, so with this, I acknowledge and recognize the work of my parents, my grandparents, my uncles, my aunties, who supported all as a network, um, not only for me, but for my brother, my cousins, for many of us to achieve the dream of uh, going to college. And, and uh, they gave us a better life than the generation before. And so, uh, yeah, I realized that me becoming a biologist and studying jaguars and mountain lions and traveling and speaking about it is a result of a dream and the support from my family and my parents. So just an amazing tradition that all families are hoping to uh, encourage the dreams. And I think musicians saving our home planet, one of the things that we're really going to focus on is making sure that those dreams and opportunities are available to future generations. So this is a great example. I just got to hear about this. You've had a couple face-to-face encounters with jaguars. Yes. <laughs> I want to hear about that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, definitely, definitely. This, those two encounters with jaguars, uh, I have to say, were in very remote places uh, during research studies in which I was looking for those jaguars and mountain lions. Um, so these sightings were not totally natural sightings. These were two jaguars that I captured in uh, snares. And I capture them in order to uh, be able to anesthetize them and then measure their physical conditions and then put a radio collar with which uh, we would be able to follow their movements in the mountains. Mm -hmm. This study was done around 120 miles south of the U.S.-Mexico border in the Sierra Madre of Sonora. And in that time, 
uh, it was fairly new to know that jaguars could range this far north in the continent. Jaguars are tropical cats. It's the third largest cat in the world after lions and tigers. It's the only roaring cat in our continent, the only cat that can roar. And um, at that time, in the mid-90s and early 2000s, scientists were discovering that uh, jaguars were ranging farther north than they could imagine from being a tropical animal. We're very familiar uh, of jaguars in the Amazon or in, in uh, Central America, in Southern Mexico, but nobody could think that they would be in the uh, arid mountains of the Sierra Madre in Sonora. And furthermore, that they actually were crossing the border and seen in the mountains in the United States. But this is also one of those stories where scientists, uh, the fact that scientists didn't know doesn't mean that people and people across time didn't know. People in time for many centuries knew of the existence of jaguars in this region of the southwest United States and northwest Mexico, and they accumulated some knowledge, uh, gave them names, gave them some meaning. And those are some of the stories that I grew up uh, reading as a kid, learning about the cultural connections with animals, and it's one of those things that attracted me to being a biologist. So when you get the opportunity and a researcher says, would you like to work in a research project in a very remote area? You're basically going to live in a tent. Uh, you won't be perceiving a salary, but you will be studying the northernmost population of jaguars in the continent. Well, if you've been dreaming about it as a kid, you say yes. And of course, when you talk about sightings, it just sounds like we got there and we saw him. It took months of work, months of uh, looking for these animals, looking for their tracks and their um, other signs. I learned how to interpret the track and sign from the ground. It's like a different way of reading or speaking a language. It's beautiful. Um, you learn to distinguish between mountain lions and jaguars. You learned how jaguars kill versus how mountain lions kill their prey. And so when you find prey, you can tell if, if this was a lion or a jaguar. But the two sightings I had was one of a female, one of a male in the spring of 2003. In the space of three days, this was very surprising. It was two captures. Other scientists and other field crews had tried to capture jaguars in this area. Uh, for quite some time and they couldn't do it. So I was lucky enough and maybe skilled in a way that we were able to capture and, and monitor a couple jaguars for a few months. Uh, the female especially was quite the adventurous because it was the first jaguar that I ever saw and captured. And by then I had some experience working with mountain lions. I could tell what their behavior would be. I kind of learned how they kind of back off and though they're threatening, they don't jump at you. And with jaguars, the situation was completely different. They actually are jumping and pulling on the cable um, and pretty much hurting themselves. So the whole capture is different. The whole methodology is different. And that's where a lot of these experiences came from. Yeah. During those couple months when you were tracking, what were some of the most exciting things you learned about those jaguars? Uh, many things. It was great. Again, it's like reading a book through a different language. And so, for example, one of the things is when you start first, you first see a jaguar track. And even if you've never seen one, if you're familiar with bear tracks, if you're familiar with lion tracks, and you see a bear track, a jaguar track, you will know that that's a jaguar track. 
if you're in a place where they are naturally distributed and you find this track, you will not be able to confuse it with anything else. So, yes, I was with people who had some training and experience, so I, I had that privilege too. But honestly, the first surprise is just seeing a Jaguar track and in interpreting and translating that into what the body of this animal is. Uh, what does it look like? How heavy is it? How big is, is this hand? How big a body is this hand supporting? Uh, what kind of prey is this, does this hand kill? You know, what, what are the size of the, the sizes of the claws in these toes, these huge toes? So that's one thing. The other thing is when you not only identify the jaguar tracks, but you're able to track them or trace them along a path. So where you can find the track, identify as a jaguar, and then either follow the track or go back, but follow the path of the animal and see how the animal actually came to the place where you find that track. That way, I discovered one time in a very narrow and steep canyon how, while I was climbing up, retracing um, backwards the tracks of this jaguar, I was struggling going up the rocks, the loose rock, and going up the, the walls, whereas the tracks of this jaguar were telling me that this jaguar was taking leaps of 10 or 12 feet down every one of those rocks that I was climbing. So this jaguar was jumping down and I was climbing up finding these tracks that was really fun and they I would say that one of my favorite things is when you find not only the tracks but to me finding a kill is really exciting when you find an animal that was killed by this predator where you find where uh, maybe they both met where the jaguar was stalking this big uh, deer, where the struggle happened, where the bite to the neck or to the back of the head happened, where some blood was drawn, where the jaguar dragged the deer to eat it, how it covered it after. Um, all of those tracks, uh, all of that sign I have found in different occasions and finding javelina deer uh, killed this way. Um, I don't know, it's something that, that once you can imagine and put the pieces together, it's very, very exciting. Big cats are so elusive that a lot of how we learn about animals that are elusive like them is the evidence they leave behind. We don't get to witness a lot of these behaviors firsthand. And to know that the big cats are... You know, in the southern part of our country, um, you just pu published a paper about ocelots and a population. Um, and I'd love it if you'd talk about both the ocelot paper, but also the difference between American and Mexican conservation. Uh, we have public lands, and I guess in Mexico, it is a more cooperative effort between private landowners and the conservation communities of Mexico. Um, so I'd like to hear about uh, both of those because I think as, as Americans, sometimes we don't really appreciate what the public lands can do for our society. So let's let's head off in that direction. But ocelots next for sure. Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, you know, one of the great products of studying a big predator, um, as we in science say, the top of the of the food network of the food web. Um, is that you get to learn and interact with all the other species in under that umbrella, you know? So from the prey, from the deer or the javelina, to the habitat where deer and javelina thrive, to the seasons when deer and javelina are born, um, 
which might mean seasons when other animals are migrating or passing by. You just realize that the jaguar or whatever the predator is, is not an isolated animal out there. It lives within a whole system that maintains it, and it is part of that system. And uh, that is just nature. That cycle can be described in Tanzania, in Arizona, in Sonora, um, in, any, in any place. But as scientists, one thing that we need to focus is not only just trying to describe it from an ecological or a scientific perspective, but to understand that the land management and the cultural practices and historical practices matter for the existence of these animals there. That the fact that you have predators in a private property in northern Mexico is also a product of the landowner doing some practices, uh, conducting some practices that might benefit that predator. So the presence of predators is very exciting. The whole food web is a very thing that we can uh, work on ecologically and describe, but the management and the people related to that place matter a lot in that picture. And so for that matter, that's where the ocelot comes in. Um, I was looking for the corridors connecting uh, jaguars in that area where I conducted the first research in the early 2000s and the mountains in Arizona. And there's about a stretch of 100 miles in between and mountains and rivers and canyons and a lot of private property. Um, this is northern Mexico. And so I learned that in order to put my skills to work and look for jaguars, I needed to put other skills to work and connect with landowners, right? As I like to say, you have to shake hands, uh, kiss babies, and drink other people's coffee in their kitchen. We're going to make a politician out of you. I'm already working on it. <laughs> no, but I mean, I can have all this expertise on jaguars. I can have all these dreams. I can have all these things. But if I don't respect the local people, their property, and their management of that property, I'm not doing a service to anything. I'm just doing it for uh, um, selfish reasons, which is, which is, to be quite honest, in, in something that a lot of scientists fall through, uh, myself included. I, that was a model that I followed before. I thought that what was important was me to have the project, me to publish the paper, me to get the PhD, me to go present at a conference, and me to have my name on a diploma that says I'm the expert. But if, as an expert, I don't respect local uh, knowledge, local cultural connections, local management, I'm not doing a service to a Jaguar or, or to anybody. So this is where Ocelots come in. We are looking for Jaguar corridors. I'm knocking on a lot of doors, literally and, and figuratively. And I start meeting a lot of these ranchers, many of whom really don't care much about biological research. They definitely care about the environment. They definitely care about the trees. They care about their cows. They care about where water comes from. They care about uh, the rainy season. But I cannot relate to them talking about endangered species or a predator. So I had to learn to talk a different language in which we find common ground. So honestly, working in water and watershed restoration was a way to connect with ranchers because they have cattle out there. That's the cultural connection. So part of this work started by using those wildlife cameras. And with this rancher, it took me two years to meet this rancher uh, who people told me, you need to go see this guy. Um, I took a look at topo maps and saw the property. It looked great for jaguar corridor. The habitat looked great for jaguar habitat. The prey species look great for jaguar prey. Um, it's very close to the border. I thought this place 
would have Jaguars. It, it made so much sense in terms of Jaguar corridors. It took me two years to meet him, to grow a relationship of trust with him, for him to know who I was. Because it's not only me trusting landowners. Landowners need to know who is this crazy person who's going to go drive in my property, right? But within a month of putting six remote cameras, we photographed an ocelot. And within a month of photographing that ocelot, this landowner went from a little bit of hesitation and doubt in my work into uh, acknowledging that these animals were important into him deciding to remove cattle out of that canyon because that ocelot deserved to live in a canyon with no cattle. Right? And so as a conservationist, that's also something you dream of. Not only you dream on discovering the cat and studying the cat, you dream on the local person saying, no, I want to be a personal hero. And so this is how ocelots, we started studying ocelots in this area. And this area is only 30 miles south of the U.S.-Mexico border in the Nogales area in, in, in Arizona, Sonora. And uh, by now, we're in 2020, it took us... Uh, about 11 years to collect information from these remote cameras. We identified at least 18 different ocelots in this population. We identified males, females, and cubs. And so this is the place, the northernmost location in the continent where ocelots are having cubs. Uh, again, 30 miles south of the border. Um, and it was a great discovery because we know very little about ocelots. And by having this partnership with a landowner, he allowed us to collect information long term, which is another ideal in science. Not, not six months, not two years, but more than 10 years of information on these species without changing their behavior, without um, trying to manipulate anything, no captures, no collection, just photographs. And with that, we were able to collect such amount of information that we can tell, we think this is the source of ocelots in Arizona. We think that this is the northernmost population of ocelots in the continent. We now know that ocelots might live a higher elevation than we used to think, because again, these are also tropical cats, and turns out they're living in oak and pine woodlands. We have photographs of ocelots in the snow, uh, so they might be also moving north, adapting to climate change, adapting to other conditions. And through all these things, we also have can make very well-informed inferences on the impacts of a border wall and any blocking structure along the U.S.-Mexico border that would prevent animals from moving freely in this region. Which brings us to one of the main reasons I've, I'm talking to you today. But before I get there, I, I just, I'm so impressed with the landowner. Yes. As I've been doing my documentary that focuses on public lands in America, one of the big issues in the Grand Staircase Escalante National Monument is uh, ranchers who, when they look at that national monument, they see a place to graze their cattle and they don't seem to have a lot of respect for the potential as a, a giant wilderness that's a brilliant opportunity to both study uh, the effects of climate change on wilderness and also just the benefits of having these populations in their backyard. So it's impressive that you got that to happen, but it's also impressive that an almost immediate change of heart learning that ocelots were on the property. Right. 
It's really cool. All right, this 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 border wall, which I don't want to use any adjectives, but there's a lot that come to mind. We're going to start by talking about how just negative an impact that is going to have on migration corridors. And, you know, animals do not see a border. They don't have a passport. <laughs> they don't go through the crossing stations and stuff. And Sergio has been paying a lot of attention to the impact that this border wall is having on wildlife in the area. So we're going we're gonna to get straight to that next. Yeah, so that also relates to my personal story. Um, when I first came to the United States to work in 2004, I was invited by conservation groups to share my expertise on that Jaguar project. I had gathered a lot of field uh, experience uh, in addition to my, my education in how to study these cats and people were interested in the United States to study Jaguars and start working on that. So that brought me here. I was hired by the University of Arizona on a uh, Cactus ferruginous pygmy owl in the Sonoran Desert project. And uh, this was actually in northern Mexico. We were also capturing uh, owls, putting tiny little transmitters, and then following them with antennas trying to see their flight, which was a technique that I had already done with the jaguar. Um, kind of different predator, but very fascinating too. So uh, imagine it's uh, the summer of 2004. Uh, I am a field technician with the University of Arizona working on a field project in Mexico and we spend 10 days in the field in Mexico camping and four days in town. It takes us about two hours to go back and forth. In that time, when I was crossing the border every 10 or four days, is when I realized that the threat of border law enforcement, heightened law enforcement, meant a threat to those pygmy owls, meant a threat to the saguaros that those pygmy owls use to nest and the cavities that they, they use as, as, uh, um, as buildings, as apartment buildings. And it was a, definitely a threat to other species that I was uh, aware of, like jaguars and, and mountain lions. And thinking about a structure like that, that can block the movement of animals, it really makes you see that it doesn't matter if animals are north or south of the border, they will be stuck. Uh, because for them, it's not like they're achieving the dream and once you're north, uh, you achieve freedom. Uh, it, you don't. And what they're chasing is grass, water, mates, or, or prey and or prey. And so that's what moves them. So cutting the, the connections between these mountains and valleys in the region where we live, which we call the Sky Island region, um, it uh, creates a big barrier for animal connectivity, for this predation, for uh, even their own breeding and the establishment of their territories where they used to be before. That's one of the most obvious ones. But another thing that this type of infrastructure blocks is the natural movement of water. We do have uh, permanent and temporary rivers and creeks that run on both directions in the border that can flood some places, that can provide water to some places, that can provide water to ranchers too. So this is where impacts start spilling into people's, even people's way of life. Um, there's also impacts during the construction of all the roads that are open. Uh, there is a tremendous network of roads. If you were flying, if you're looking at it from the sky and you didn't know where south 
north or north of the border is, you would only see a network of roads and you could fairly accurately guess that that's the north side. That the border patrol the, uh, has impacted these lands beyond just the, the wall in a tremendously large and a network of roads that are new, that create erosion, that destroy vegetation, that block corridors, that block water, that create a lot of problems that we actually didn't have before all this heightened law enforcement started. Not only, not to ignore helicopters and the helipads where they land, not to ignore what they describe as forward operating bases, which is basically remote areas where they create these military bases, um, and also high power lights, generators uh, that are working all night, even in places where uh, bats used to come to migrate, like the San Pedro River National Conserva Riparian National Conservation Area in Arizona. That is a protected area that is now so impacted that birds don't come anymore. Even when people say, but, but birds can fly, what's the big problem? Well, noise also affects them and light also affects them and destruction of the habitat also affects them. So it's not just the barrier. Um, and um, as I continued my work going back and forth uh, for research on both sides of the border, conducting the pygmy owl study, starting with the corridor search of the jaguars and the ocelots, working with the ranchers in Mexico, working a lot in habitat restoration. That made me personally feel what it is to cross this border and what it is to be uh, a, mi a minority or seen as a minority in this country. Like, I came here as a scientist, I already came with my education, I already spoke the level of English that I spoke, and yet I was still seen as an enemy every 10 days when I crossed the border back into the US, you know? Because I looked dirty, because I was carrying a backpack, and because I was coming with a crew that looked kind of weird. I, it took me years to understand that I myself was right in the middle of the whole immigration um, and border phenomenon and that I was being a victim of that. In fact, uh, I'll mention that a few years later, I started also some projects looking for Jaguars north of the border when I started supporting other groups. And I was threatened by Border Patrol at gunpoint. So I decided to stop a lot of my science, a lot of my projects in the US side because I was afraid that Border Patrol would basically disappear me out there in the remote places where I was looking for Jaguars. And that means not only a loss for me personally, more importantly, it's a loss for science, it's a loss for conservation, and it's a loss for any scientist in a marginalized identity who think that they can dream to be a big cat biologist or anything and are threatened by official policies that create institutional racism of which many of us are on the receiving end. Just imagine for, for a moment you're doing what you're set out to do, you're doing your dreams and then you find yourself government officials treating you in a suspicious manner. It's just, disgusting is yeah. really the only and, word for it yeah and and doing my work in a way that i mean it's a job that somebody offered me i did i actually didn't take it from anybody else because nobody had the expertise that's why i got that job right. um but also uh preventing a work from a university to con to continue you know uh really like at that level it became not only a threat to me but a threat to my employer a threat to my visa i used to have a science visa that is only for Canadians and Mexicans uh, 
border patrol agents don't know about that visa so i would have to explain how they got how i got it you know i would have to explain to border patrol agents how to get online to apply for this stupid visa like that's the level of of no knowledge and yet um, intimidation that they use for a lot of these things so at some point i really had to stop uh with my research there right and a lot of this is pre the current administration this yeah, is oh, not yeah. a, a new problem yeah. that uh the new administration invented um so once again a lack of willingness to embrace multiculturalism in our country it's only hurting us mm -hmm. it's, it's, we're the losers is, is how i would put it um i want you to talk a little bit about the real id act yes. and there are things going on with the border wall construction and the militarization of the border that this Real ID Act is allowing numerous laws to be ignored in the process. So let's talk about that because just some of the most disgusting things I've heard about happening in our country are a result of using this Real ID Act. Yeah, uh, absolutely. This is uh, the most critical piece of legislation that affects what's going on on the border right now and yes i was going to say that if your audience is wondering what do we do what is the one thing that we need to know people need to know that in 2005 during the george w bush administration a law was passed after uh, the the attacks of 9 11 to which is called the real id act that Real ID Act has one section, section 102, which allows the Secretary of Homeland Security to waive all environmental or social laws along the border in order to expedite construction of border barriers. And that is the language. I've, it, now it's been so long I've learned it. But this is a couple important points. You are totally right to say this problem did not start with this administration, which is not to defend this administration, is to put the responsibility on administrations before, including President Obama, who didn't, though he did not build walls, he has been the, is going to in history books as the president who has deported the most number of people, the highest number of people. So. Each one of these uh, administrations bears some responsibility. But in 2005, Congress passed a law in which allows the Secretary of Homeland Security, the Secretary of Homeland Security, like any other secretary, is an appointee person by the president, not an elected official. And an appointee cannot waive laws because there's no checks and balances, right? This is where democracy is at stake. This is when you give the power to an, to an appointee, which, as we can see, it can be somebody in the oil and gas industry, it can be somebody from the NRA, it can be somebody from a bank, it can be somebody who does not respect the values of democracy and rule of law in this country and will be willing to waive anything. Um, so, uh, since 2005, barriers have been built with no prior scientific study, with no engineering project, and with no analysis of the potential impacts to plants and animals. Uh, but also no analysis of the impacts to clean water, to 
uh, clean air, uh, and no respect, very importantly, no respect for Native American laws that protect uh, repatriation, that protect archaeological sites, that protect a lot of other things that... Um, burial grounds. Absolutely. And so by waiving all these laws, basically what the Department of Homeland Security is giving itself permission to do is just to run the bulldozer uh, through the mountains, not caring for endangered species, not caring for clean water, not caring for wilderness areas, clean air, and human remains, and so many other things. One thing that we need to work together on is repealing Section 102 of the Real ID Act. The, a bill has been introduced in Congress at least two or three times. Um, Congressman Grijalva of Arizona has introduced a bill in Congress to repeal 102, uh, Section 102, but really what we want to see at the border is restoring the rule of law and the checks and balances that allow three parts of government in this country to work in collaboration and in partnership, not in competition of each other. Perfectly, perfectly <laughs> stated. Thank you. Um, and I, as I try to keep up on the news, there is a sacred burial site. We're a wall. We're actually detonating on this hill. An organ pipe, they're bulldozing organ pipe cactus, which unfortunately I've never seen one. I was hoping to zip down there this yeah. trip. But literally the area, the National Monument was created partly to preserve organ pipe cactus. But if you get to ignore laws, you can just run a bulldozer over them. Um, I know there's some very important water, water sources that are getting destroyed by this wall. So quite a bit is going on there and it's, it's uh, extremely damaging. Um, some of this is in response, and, and I, I don't know a lot about this subject matter, but there are some issues with people illegally crossing the border for, for some drug trade stuff. Okay. It's a very dangerous journey, like areas like Cabaza Prieta. Um, or Big Bend, Texas. Big Bend. Or Whitefish, Montana. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so there's, there's, there, uh, but it seems like the response is heavy handed and it, nonsensical. Do we need to militarize our border? Do we need to have walls? Or is this an issue that could be? dealt with in a much saner way. Uh, yeah, it's a long story. Um, one thing I will say is that I'm not, I did not grow up in the border, and so um, I came to the border for work. I, I am from more uh, in, in the middle of Mexico, central Mexico. But I will say that from my own personal experience, working in Chihuahua, Sonora, Baja California, and living in Arizona, and working in the field in remote areas, looking for jaguars uh, for 20 years, I have felt more threatened in the United States by officials than by anybody in Mexico, by landowners or by anybody else. Uh, in fact, that's why I kept doing the work that I kept doing because I realized that one of the things that I'm trying to do is also change that narrative of, the, of danger. I just told you about how I had to stop projects north of the border because Border Patrol pretty much put an AK-47 in front of my face. Uh, 
And on the other hand, I share with you a story about a Mexican rancher who decided to move cattle off a canyon in order to give it to an ocelot. Those two stories never make it in the news in the United States. The negative about the officials in the United States and the positive about ranchers in Mexico, those two stories are never make it in the news. But if there is one shooting of a family, of a white family in Mexico, it will be all the way to the New York Times and it will be repeated everywhere. But if, it is, if there is a shooting of a brown family in Mexico, it will not be reported in the US. All of that, I'm using examples of the last couple months just to show that in one way, there is no balance in the way things are reported in the United States and that um, a lot of ideas are criminalized and a lot of things are seen abnormal. And yet there's a lot of violence in this country. There's a lot of individual and uh, institutional violence and very few people raising their voice about it. Now, the 2005 Real ID Act, which allowed the construction of these barriers, was passed in response to the attacks of 9-11 in New York City. The people who attacked in New York City came through a tour with a tourist visa through Canada. However, when Congress passed the Real ID Act, they argued that they wanted to stop terrorists coming from Mexico. So that was an absolute lie. That's just like when Bush said, we're going to Iraq because there's weapons of... No, there was no such thing. Well, there was no terrorists coming through the southern border into the United States. But at that time, the paranoia that Americans so much embrace was there. It is in the language. It is in the media. It is in the stories that are covered. It is in the way that people perceive other countries. And so, of course, it was supported. Of course. The, other, the worst thing is that they also argued that by heightening law enforcement at the southern border, they would be addressing three completely different things. Drug smuggling, uh, undocumented migrants, workers, and uh, terrorism. That is like grabbing three completely different things. And notice, we don't even bring up climate, re climate refugees, because that's now another thing that we have. So... We don't even address solutions. We just thought that those three problems, terrorism, uh, uh, undocumented migrants, and, and drug smugglers, you can just put them all in a, in a shoebox, cover the shoebox, mix it a little bit, and then come up with one idea, which is called invest billions of dollars of the American budget into building a barrier. Instead of investing a percentage of that money into creating sources of work, creating jobs, schools, health services, and improving the way of life in other places where migrants come from, especially climate refugees. Uh, instead of having this narrative in the United States of people saying, oh, well, their house is on fire. My house is prettier. They, they all want to come to our house, so we should... That's not it. You need to acknowledge that the United States many decades ago had policies affecting those countries that are affected today, that the people that are migrating today weren't even born when the United States was torturing and, and bringing militias into places in Central America, not addressing climate change. So these people were born after that, and they are having to find a way to survive. And it so happens that in this continent, we always migrated when we needed to go somewhere. There were found uh, military macaw feathers in Chaco Canyon, and there's no military macaws there. They know that they had exchanges with the Aztecs in Central Mexico, they know that they were exchanges everywhere. They know that they have messengers that were crossing the border all the time. So this idea of 
not crossing the border as a solution is an idea that came from somewhere else, that came from Europe, that came from the English uh, oppressing the Irish. And so this is not an idea that works with us here. Uh, go back to where you came from and find a different way to one, acknowledge the responsibility of the US and the American government into the crisis that those countries live today. And two, address the root causes, not just put a bandaid on the border as if that's what's going to cure this cancer. I don't want to detour from that. I want to stick right there. There is the European environmentalism and this environmentalism has a very narrow view. And I am slowly learning, uh, mostly by attending tribal gatherings in Bears Ears. We have so much to learn from the indigenous environmental communities and the indigenous peoples and if we're going to get through, I don't call it climate change anymore, I call it the climate crisis. We have so much to learn. And what we just heard from Sergio there was a good starting point. But I think there's a lot more that we can talk about regarding in indigenous knowledge and doing what we can to pass this beautiful planet to future generations and a lot of it does have to do with the climate crisis yeah um, i like to talk about that because as a scientist um, i learned and grew up with these values of observation of using consistent methods of analyzing information of collecting those observations but I also grew up uh, with another side of my family who were very connected to the land, who had no science degrees, but knew a lot of things about survival, not only surviving, but thriving, about how to make food, where food comes from, where do our customs and our culture come from, where do our dress comes from. And so I had the privilege of learning from both ends. But I also shared with you earlier how before I was able to use the technology of putting radio callers that send a signal to an airplane that collects that signal and then we create geographic information systems, all of that technology could not have been used if I didn't use traditional ecological knowledge of learning how to read tracks and sign to find those jaguars and then use Western science. So science and traditional ecological knowledge are not in competition. And by using one, we don't lose. The other one doesn't lose anything. They can complement each other. And so I think it's very important, just as we are addressing this type of crisis, that whereas some people now realize that they need to produce their food locally, they need to have their own salsa garden outside of the kitchen, or they need to have their own chicken coops to have their own chicken and eggs right there outside of the backyard. Well, those are practices that indigenous cultures have done for a long time. They have gardens, they produce their food, they produce their eggs, they in fact used to uh, managed range used to manage the grasslands the fire in order to have new growth for deer and elk to come closer for bison to come closer to hunt so that's some knowledge right there uh, again 
to produce food, to live in a place, to adapt to the seasons in that place that can be used also to address the climate crisis. We don't have to solve everything through technology. We don't have to solve everything through Western science. Not all of us have access to all of that. So we need to use to make use of other tools that we might have there. And to be quite honest, nobody better than indigenous communities in every region of the whole continent to know what we can do, to know where we can look uh, for, and to create um, also a different vision, because it's also the cultural vision of their understanding that the the land, the earth is not for us to enjoy today, it is borrowed from our future generations. Whereas our Western civilization, based on capitalism, tells us be rich today and screw the rest, right? Um, that Just that simple value of how we see time and our life in that time frame allows us to understand that for some, livelihood is for the future and for some, livelihood is for me today to enjoy three houses, seven cars, 17 TV sets, and travel all over the world. It's very different values. For this planet to survive, the Western industrialized capitalistic society, if, if we stay on this path, there's a good chance we're not going to get through this. And indigenous peoples live closer to the earth, closer to the land. And it, it always cracks me up. It, it seems like, my, you know, I have a lot of friends from all walks of life, and my friends who kind of have embraced capitalism in the biggest way don't seem any happier or maybe in some ways less happy than... Uh, you know, when I lived in L.A., I would work with the, the Los Bands, is what I would call them. Uh, did you grow up listening to some Los music? Oh, man, it's great stuff. <laughs> so I recorded, and the guys would show up. Certainly not in the trappings of uh, American capitalism. And those were some of my funnest sessions with some of the happiest people I know. So, And for me, I... Sleeping on my bed is nice, but I prefer my tent <laughs> quite a bit. So we don't need all these trappings. And uh, it's it's a big mind shift. It is, yeah. But I think, once again, we have some wonderful teachers not far from us if we're willing to embrace that. Yeah, there was a time after I graduated from college. Um, I have a bachelor's in biology. And I had the opportunity to go live in an indigenous community, the largest indigenous community in Mexico, the Tarahumara of the Sierra Madre, also known as Raramuri. Um, these are the running people that have been brought up in some documentaries recently and books. So I lived there in the mid-1990s. Uh, and, you know, I had just graduated from school. I wanted to save the world. I, w I had a lot of ideals, right? Like I wanted to save the jaguar and I wanted to save the bear and I wanted to save the whale. And I had these books and I have my new recently graduated. So my mom gave me this laptop computer and I had my bicycle and I had my books. So I moved to the mountains to live in this indigenous region in a cabin with all this stuff. I took my computer, I took my books, I took my bicycle, I took my binoculars, whatever I had. I thought, well, I left home, so I'm living pretty basic. 
But when the indigenous people that I lived with, when they saw all that stuff, and we were getting close to the winter, um, and in the winter it gets so cold up in the mountains, they travel, they migrate to live down in the barrancas, down in the canyons. And so when they were planning the migration, it's a, just a local migration, they asked me, so how are you going to do it? And I said, well, I'm just going to grab my stuff and go. And they said, no, we carry our stuff. How are you going to carry that computer and that and those that pile of books and then your kitchen pots and all your shed, right? Like, how are... And in that moment, even though it really, my livelihood was not at stake, I realized that from their view, I had too much stuff and they were right. Like if my life depended on it, I could have not done it, right? To me, it was like I was carrying knowledge and documenting all this stuff in my laptop and making, you know, doc. But in reality, they were telling me, you, what are you doing? <laughs> and that was a very quick way to learn that even my perspective of simplicity, even my perspective of anti-capitalism, I still live in it. I still live in it and make use of it. And there are levels. But you're right. One of the things is that indigenous communities are more connected to the land. They have more historical connections. And they also are on the receiving end of the impacts of climate change. They are also on the receiving end of the drought or the extreme weather event or uh, the lack of germination of seed or the lack of seed or the lack of bees or they are on the receiving end of that. And so, whereas some of us might be comfortable enough and might have friends who are quite comfortable in capitalism, we have to acknowledge that there are communities in the front lines who are on the receiving end of pipelines in the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge, you know, who are receiving on the receiving end of water contamination by the Dakota Access Pipeline, that are on the receiving end of a border wall that is dividing their own nation that has been there for, mil for millennia. So um, I do acknowledge this privilege because that way I realize what I have and the advantages I have, and it allows me to center my work and the needs and the, the life that I'm looking for, to center it in those who need most, not in me, right? So that's how I'm trying to open a future for other generations, those who didn't enjoy my privilege, those who didn't get higher education, those who didn't get the parents to support them for to do that. Um, so I have to center a lot of how I decide politically, how I decide in what I buy, or where I purchase, who I support, how I travel. All of that is not centered on my satisfaction or my comfort level. It's centered on how I'm serving other communities through doing that. That is beautiful. Thank you. Yeah, no, and, then, and, and, you know, as a Westerner, I'm, I'm second generation immigrant to this country. I'm not trying to tell people to not embrace capitalism or Western science. I mean, the, a lot of amazing things, let's mm -hmm. acknowledge it, have occurred. But I think as a society, we're going to need to have a discussion of, you know, what are the good things that have come from this and start recognizing that some of these excesses, a lot of the pollution, we can't just look at capitalism and, and Western values in the same way that you might have 50 years ago. Right. The damage that capitalism and Western values have created worldwide at this point is coming home to roost. 
and I don't think it's going to happen, but I think as this next election occurs, America needs to have a serious dialogue about what this country looks like in the, in the future. Yeah, yeah. Dialogue is, is important. You know, being uh, born in a different country with my higher education in a different country, it means also that I wasn't exposed to a lot of the values, a lot of the readings, a lot of the education in this country. Uh, on the one hand, the pro of that is that I know geography. I like to say that Americans just don't know geography uh, openly. They just, just don't know geography. Um, but on the serious side, I also acknowledge that I didn't read the same heroes or the same values that other people did. So as a citizen now of this country, I cannot accept people telling me that John Muir was a visionary because he created national parks, when actually what I see today, 125 years later, is that John Muir facilitated the removal of indigenous people. Right. So whereas some people want to see the national parks as the as the legacy, what I see is removed, erased, tortured, oppressed, killed, genocide of indigenous people. And that's where I come from. I mean, I also come from a Western capitalist uh, country. Uh, I also was benefited from my parents going to college. My, my parents are medical doctors in Mexico. They have a job, they drive cars, they have a house, they watch TV, they, a lot of those things. But at the very same time, I saw my dad be a social worker in the most informal way by giving his food away, by not charging for private consultation, by getting paid with cheese and with grapes and with peaches when people didn't have money to pay. I saw my mom working in family planning, uh, not doing it for money, but to educate younger women to show them that there is more in life than have kids when they're really young and they can, they can keep studying, they can keep helping their families or creating their own family. Just, I saw my parents investing their own capitalistic privilege in sharing with somebody else either knowledge or resources or time or all of the above. And so it doesn't mean that you have to absolutely tomorrow stop and sell all your stuff and never buy anything. And it means that you, again, need to center the needs and the conditions of other people for you to decide if you really need to buy that fifth pair of running shoes, you know, for you to decide if you really, really need to have another fucking cell phone, you know, for you to decide if you really, really need to get in that airplane to for whatever for you to understand that your your footprint uh, matters and that it doesn't take anything away from you uh, but that awareness lets you see somebody else and where we met in bear's ears uh, you know I'm sure I'm going to talk a lot about this over the history of this podcast <laughs> but the the goal of bear's ears by Utah Dene Bikea and their discussions is healing. So, and and I came at that 125-year-old public lands legacy, oh, Theodore Roosevelt, he's the man, right. and stuff. And, you know, even as a guy who's backpacked countless miles in our, on our public lands, I, I knew this this stories of the Awanichi and Yosemite and have been to Tenaya Lake named after Chief, 
Chief Tanaya. Um, but they're really the story of indigenous peoples on our public lands is not nearly highlighted as much as it as it should be. And that's one of the things that's so beautiful about Bears Ears is it really is a place where we can start to heal, start to make that connection with our indigenous brothers and sisters and neighbors and and in so many ways begin that connection that's been missing. And this is one of the things that Sergio, Sergio, (laughs) (laughs) it's the the Cleveland accent. (laughs) This is where your life has headed over the last couple of years. Uh, Tell everybody about your new position with the Sierra Club and what you're doing with the youth and the community. Is it mostly Tucson or is it all over the Southwest? I work in five states in the Southwest. Um, So I said before, my background, I have an education in wildlife biology. I have a master's in science in arid lands uh, research and management. I have studied mountain lions, pygmy owls, rattlesnakes, jaguars. Um, always wanted to be a field uh, biologist and have done 20, 25 years of that. During that time, I shared with you the story of through at least a decade going back and forth between Arizona and Sonora, crossing the U.S.-Mexico border, which at some point hit me as myself being an immigrant, as myself being a person of color, having an accent, not being born in this country, and then going through the immigration system to the degree that I went from a tourist visa to a work visa to a green card to citizenship. That requires a lot of time, a lot of money, requires you to be bilingual, requires you to know how to read. Um, I have those privileges, but I could see that people not having all that could be in this country hiding unfairly because even though they're paying taxes every year, they're doing their work, they're sticking to the law, whatever it is. I was that person. Um, So when I started feeling this uh, intersection of what I was seeing, the environmental injustice of the border wall, and then I saw the social injustice of immigration, that's where I felt these two issues need to connect and if we don't address social justice when we think about environmental justice we're leaving one piece out i use myself as an example but the other example the most poignant example is the toono odom nation in arizona the toono odom are a nation i could be mistaken but i think is the second or third largest in our state and they own a great uh um area of land and this area of land is bisected by the international border. The U.S.-Mexico border cuts this nation in two. Not in half. Most of it is in the north side of the border, but there is some in the south side of the border. So these people have been here forever. Uh, People came here and drew lines and and created a border and uh, centuries later now people come here and create a barrier and put border patrol all over and and, and, and agents and papers and checkpoints and all all of those things. So whereas they are seeing the destruction of their desert, they're seeing the destruction 
construction of their saguaros, of their natural places where they grew up, of the springs that they have used for centuries, of the salt areas where they have created or done pilgrimage and exchanges with other uh, tribes and nations. Whereas they have been living there for a long time, now comes this barrier that doesn't let them move within their own place, that doesn't allow them to reach their own water, that doesn't let them uh, see their own family. That's where environmental and social justice connect at the border. So whereas in, in the late 1800s, we had people telling us that we just focus on conservation and not see people. And today, a lot of conservationists are focused on the bear, focused on the whale, focused on the jaguar, but don't see people as part, as part of the, the picture. Then we're leaving a great section out and we're not really working to address the problems. If we don't address the problems of people, who is going to protect that bear? Who is going to defend that saguaro, that saguaro or that pygmy owl? You know, I like to say for uh, climate refugees from Central America. I am a jaguar biologist. I want other people to protect jaguars. How can I tell kids in Guatemala and Belize and El Salvador and Nicaragua to protect jaguars if they don't even have food, right? How can we work with the next generation to become that jaguar biologist, to become that politician, to become that land manager or or policymaker, if they have to migrate and leave their own lands because right now it's not safe to live there because climate change has changed all those things. So if I don't focus on those populations, who cares about jaguars, right? right? right. How can I care about jaguars today here in Arizona when there's one or two and yet there's thousands of children who look like me and my family who came from places where me and my family played and they are in cages today. How can I care about the ocelots? How can I care about those saguaros if there are children who, whose future is in a cage the way it is right now? So that makes me look at social justice in order to try to address environmental injustice. And I, I, this is my, my, my claim. Like We need to work on social justice either as individuals, uh, as staff people of an organization, or as musicians, as you, uh, college students, as anybody who we are. We need to learn about some of the issues happening to people in order to save nature as we want to do it. There is an amazing connection. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And you're also introducing the youth to public lands in in this neck of the woods right yes yes so one of the great ideas uh, of this sierra club role that i have now as a local outdoors coordinator is creating outdoor programs that expose youth to nature that expose them to their public lands that give them the values that they have heard or learn new values and through that they might become advocates to then protect that nature that national park that monument that uh, indigenous area. You were talking about this history of national parks and the narrow vision. Last June, well, last year, 2019, was the 100, the centennial of the Grand Canyon as a national park. So I organized a trip to the national park with a group of people, 30 people, uh, from the Latino community, mostly in Phoenix, to visit the Grand Canyon. All of these, none of these people had visited the Grand Canyon before. 
two hours. Yes. So you live in Arizona, you grow up in Phoenix, you hear about the Grand Canyon, you're in the Grand Canyon state, but you've never visited, which makes us think about barriers, makes us think about access. You know, it's not just that they don't want to go or something, it's that some people don't feel they belong. But we created a space, as my program does, create inclusive spaces for people to feel comfortable at their own level. They don't have to wear any specific gear. They don't have to have a brand. They don't have to have a backpack. They just get in the van and I'll build a tent for them if they're willing to sleep in the cold a little bit that night. So we took, uh, in partnership with another local organization, about 30 people to the Grand Canyon. I wanted them to learn about national parks and to share the beauty of the Grand Canyon. But I wanted them to also learn the real story of public lands and what it means to have a national park. So as you were saying earlier, with that story, we don't know it. So we went and learned that story from the knowledge holders. I had one knowledge holder from the Navajo Nation, one from Havasupai, and one from Yavapai, and they came to the campground before anybody saw the canyon. They came to the campground and for hours sat with us and told us stories of some of them, their grandparents told them stories about how they were removed from the Grand Canyon in order to create the national park, how they lost their homes, how they lost their sacred places, how they lost their sources of food and water. And so when these people, this new audience that had never seen a national park, they heard these stories and then we go to the park and we are met with a big kind of like a, a, a big booth with lines and cars and a huge parking lot and a circus of people there in the visitor center and shops and this and that for them it was a shock because what the stories they heard about the creation don't uh, reflect what now the national park is like but people now only see what now it looks like without knowing the past history so it was a way to learn history in a different way it was a, a way to learn history from those who know about history you know no who know those who just grow history but those who live the history who are the result of that history and to understand that the impact of these national parks it's very unfair to say it's America's best idea when 10% of the population today are indigenous people who don't feel connected, many of them, to those lands. They feel out of those lands. They feel erased of those lands, uh, made invisible. And so we, we should also acknowledge and understand that when we talk about public lands, we're talking about lands that actually were not where public in reality, not addressed and managed by a government, were uh, managed and loved by people, that those people didn't see barriers or borders, that those people didn't base their knowledge on what other people looked like, but on kinship and how they connected with each other. And through kinship, they saw more than human people. They saw tree people, they saw animal people, they saw water people. And that connection to the land is something our culture, Western society doesn't have. We might feel connected to places because we love those places, but our ancestors are not there. We don't know the names of those mountains. We don't know what the medicinal plants are. And so when I think about real connection to the land, I feel a lot of respect for the survival and, and continued existence of indigenous people. And I try to use my position at Sierra Club and, and the privilege I have to elevate those voices, not mine, but to elevate the voices of indigenous people today who are thriving and, 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 and teaching us how to survive in this world. Also, in addition, introducing the opportunity to experience these stories, which yes. 
even although my environmental work has increased a hundredfold the last three years prior to that it was my way of getting people to care about these places was just to hey you want to try backpacking sure yeah and very similar to what you're doing in terms of when my friends would finally get off the trail after spending three, four nights mm -hmm. out in the middle of nowhere, that was the best time I ever had in my whole life. I can't wait to do it again. They cared about it. It was, it was yeah. like a Johnny Appleseed Absolutely. experience. Yeah. And that's what you're doing right now. You're making a, a comfortable place for people who don't necessarily connect prior to getting to go with you, which is really great. And I'm glad to hear you did it at the canyon. Yeah, yeah, um, and like that, you know, that kind of story and that kind of experience feeds me to keep going. I just took 35 kids to a national park last Friday um, and taught them about uh, smelling creosote, which is a plant here in the desert that we say smells like rain. Um, um, yes, this is the type of opportunities and work that I like to do because it brings me back not only to who I was when I was this kid dreaming, um, it brings me back to who my dad was when he was a kid, because he's first-generation college student, college graduate. I'm not. I had that privilege. To me, I had a role model that was fairly easy to follow, but my dad did not have that role model. So then I try to become a mentor. I try to become visible for kids, uh, for youth who are looking for a role model, somebody that they might want to aspire to be like. You know, I also aspire. I have my aspiration. I see Congressman Raul Grijalva, and he makes me aspire to be a role model, a decision maker, a policy maker. You know, Congressman Grijalva was the main reason why I decided to become a U.S. citizen because he makes me feel like I belong in this country because he makes me feel like my voice matters and he represents me. And so that connection, I want other kids to feel with me. I don't want to be a hero. I just want to be a model, which is what my dad did by becoming a hero also. <laughs> now, it's, it's critical to inspire the younger generations to live their dreams. Yeah. Age has kind of shown me. I've, I've always had small dreams that I mm -hmm. took on. And... Uh, nothing has gotten in my way and I think that's once again part of my parents teaching mm -hmm, exactly. they're like yeah. John dream it do yeah. it yeah. and those are the people I always want to surround myself with but if you're a younger person listening and you have aspirations your life will be extremely better if yeah. you follow that path that is your passion I'm sitting next to a guy who's done it to the fullest and I can't wait to see where he ends up five years from now. You know, now I'm also, as you say, with time, I'm embracing the fact that part of the path, I kind of saw it from the beginning. But where I am right now, I'd never saw it. I never imagined it. And I'm embracing it. So just because you have an ideal or a dream that you want to follow doesn't mean that you know the path. And it doesn't mean that the, the dots are connecting one to three and you will get there. You need to go through the path, actually. That's, the, that's what makes it. It's like you have to keep walking. You have to keep swimming. You have to keep looking for that path. And sometimes decisions will take you one way or the other. But embrace those decisions. 
embrace your success when you are successful temporarily or permanently at something you do embrace it as much as you embrace failure too don't run away from failure i've told you a lot of positive stories but i have a lot of stories of failure that actually allowed me to get to where i am today you know so in the other part that i want to say for this is I talked about different values like science or like traditional ecological knowledge. There are so many other values, uh, both cultural and personal. But I want to say that I have learned in recent years the importance of art, of music, of creativity to support this work too. It is not out of the realm of protecting nature if you are a musician, if you're creating music, if you're inspiring other people. It is not out of the realm of addressing the climate crisis if you are a painter or a poet. You are part of the movement. Every We don't just need scientists. That's when things get boring. When scientists think that only scientists can solve these things and they just have scientific conversations, it gets boring. We need diversity not only in in ethnic background we need diversity in skills we need diversity in vision we need diversity in languages we need diversity in the way we address these things because i have personally benefited from working with artists uh, i draw more now i am able to process my thoughts through painting uh, i'm not good i don't like it but at the same time, what I see is that is that process that allows me to, to just have a time for myself. And, and it makes me a better person. So I want to encourage creativity in your audience. I want to encourage people to move in their circles and, um, and make music and make noise and make it meaningful. Well, it's a, it's a wonderful way to communicate. Yes. And, and I'm really gay Cleveland musicians and artists. You just got to shout out all That's the way right. from Tucson. <laughs> a beautiful thing. And keep up your great work. Uh, you did talk about setting goals and dreams and that path. And I do want to remind everyone to enjoy their time on that path. That's, that's always my favorite part. When I get somewhere, I tend to look back and go, wow, remember when you were struggling and yes. you did all that? to get to where you're at and in, in so many ways that's the best part of it that's the that's the growing experience the learning experience all right sergio i got a bunch of monarch butterfly fans all right up in cleveland ohio so you're gonna you're gonna you're gonna solve the big monarch butterfly issue uh, apparently if you find a caterpillar and you want to bring it home and put it in a terrarium. There's been some studies that that screws up their navigational systems for migrations. What should we be doing? <laughs> so, uh, monarch butterflies. This is this is uh, another fascinating thing that I started working on. You know, when I was putting those remote cameras, looking for jaguars, photographing skunks and foxes and deer and coyotes and badger. Um, some of those photographs through the years were monarch butterflies migrating in the same places where I saw jaguars. So it took me years to get there, but I got this message that said, protecting the habitat of monarchs helps protect the habitat of jaguars, at least in some places. And it's a lot easier to reach. It's easier to create gardens for monarchs in schools than to create gardens for jaguars anywhere, right? So as an educational uh, component, um, and outreach with the community. I, I love butterflies and, and I have learned a great deal. 
So in the learning with monarchs, we have the great opportunity to see their metamorphosis by collecting some of these animals and these caterpillars or even the eggs and raising them and seeing them grow and everything. But it does, it does uh, uh, affect a little bit of their, their uh, travel. It affects a little bit of their instruments in the way they travel. But the other thing that depending on where you are and and Ohio could be one of those places, but if they are also put in captivity in a place with high humidity, it also increases uh, the risk of being infected with a protozoa, and another thing that affects monarchs. So there's a lot of things. However, I would say that if you are able to have monarchs in captivity with the actual pot, like one thing I do is that I have those baskets for the laundry, which are like big, um, cylinders that open a lid and they are open they're made put one of those upside down over your pot so you don't have to take the caterpillars away you just make sure that when they're butterflies they won't fly they won't fly okay. away right so the weather and everything else stays the same so you don't affect you don't affect the you don't take away the butterfly from the natural light and other things that's mm -hmm. one the other one is that if you're able to have a patch of milkweed uh, plant milkweed you will have the eggs there. You will have the caterpillars there. So just protect these. Keep it outside. I put them inside of a tent in my in my backyard, and it's just so the caterpillars don't walk away. But they still have the natural light. They still have the weather, and it doesn't affect their flight. Mm -hmm. But the other thing is also if there's a lot of them, if you are um, using one or two caterpillars as an example for a group of kids, and these two caterpillars get lost. At least I think that the educational component is worth uh, doing it. So you can, I don't mean to stretch ethics, I just mean to stretch the way we see education yeah. uh, and not try to do everything as of, well, 100% of the caterpillars that are born should be 100% of the butterflies and should be complete 100% of the migration. That might not happen already in nature. You know, a lot of those caterpillars get squished. A lot of go those caterpillars get eaten. A lot of those uh, young butterflies get just flown away. I don't know. So if, if I'm, I've, I've had the opportunity to teach kids with this, and when I see the impact of that, I think I'm willing uh, to do one or two caterpillars. Now, if they don't have to be monarchs and they're more common butterflies, it's a lot easier. Um, but yeah, when we this is one of those examples when we use science purely, then scientists are all gonna be like, well, what kind of what, what kind of milkweed species are you using, and what are you, right? But if you bring in other values and other skills and other language, the artist will say, no, we need to paint it, right? Like somebody will say, we need to consider this, we need to consider the education of the kids, we need to consider how are they learning. I mean. If a scientist today wants to argue that we're killing monarchs by studying them, then I'm going to bring up the name of all those scientists 40 or 30 years ago who were tagging butterflies, missing and failing, experimenting with different, and still killing a lot of those. I'm going to argue about all those who started the collection of birds by killing birds and putting them in boxes and putting them, right? So let's acknowledge that uh, it, is, it is a way we learn but that having hands-on experience would greatly advance the interest of youth and adults into this kind of work. Excellent, excellent. So Cleveland, 
More milkweed. Yeah. We just plant milkweed. You know, plant it and they will come. We have a, we've had a patch yeah. in front of my house for 20 years. And the first year we found three caterpillars. And it's been the milkweed desert for caterpillars <laughs> ever <laughs> yeah. since. And this year, we actually, I have video of a monarch putting eggs on my plant. Yeah, great. Yeah, but the caterpillars never showed up. <laughs> they just got the eggs. That's, yeah, well, that's part of the thing. We don't know what's going on in the natural system. Yeah. Uh, they could have been infected. They could, uh, we don't know. So what's important is that we, you provide that opportunity, you provide the garden, some year they will make it, some year they won't, you can improve it, you can water it, you can protect it, you can, you know. But at some point you also have to let it be, let, let nature be nature. But if by doing that you inspire your neighbor to do another one and the next one and the next one, then you're helping create a corridor, you're giving more opportunities for the butterflies. And to be quite honest, you're giving every one of your neighbors an opportunity to enjoy what you already have been for many years. Many years. So you're an avid reader and student. Mm -hmm. And who are some, and you've already turned me on to a few, but some of your favorite uh, indigenous environmental authors change a little perspective for some of the yeah. people back in Cleveland. So I like this question when I say uh, learn from somebody else, read different authors, find different influences. A lot of people say, well, who should we read? So first I want to explain this. In our Western society, knowledge is passed mostly in books. So for us, learning from books is the natural way of doing it. But we cannot expect that other cultures and other knowledge holders also will communicate the same way by having books. So first off, it's very difficult to find who the indigenous John Muir is, right? Like that person exists and is working right now, but, it might not, but they might not be writing a book. Right. So let's just acknowledge that first. Learning and education happen in many different ways than only reading or through lectures of a group of people sitting in front of an, one person uh, who just communicates in one direction. That storytelling is a different way of learning. That uh, oral tradition is another different way of training, of learning. That events and gatherings are another way of go collecting information as you and I actually met, right? Okay. So with that in mind, it's very difficult to find indigenous authors who address environmental work because we, because we narrow the search. Okay. We need to be comfortable with broadening the search to then say, tell me about indigenous authors that talk about their, their own culture, their own world. They might not use environmental terms or terminology or, or goals, but their work is environmental. Absolutely. Okay, so one book that I'm absolutely enjoying right now and regretting the years that I, it's taken me to read it because it's been at the top of my pile but there's always another book in there is Braiding Sweet Grass by Robin Wall Kimmerer uh, Professor Wall Kimmerer uh, is a scholar an academic uh, an Anishinaabe tribal member and this book is just braiding scientific and traditional knowledge into a narrative where it explains to you how one or the other is not more important they complement each other and they can certainly take elements from each other now because we use less traditional ecological knowledge a lot of her points about are about how much 
while he grew, she grew up and she grew up hearing stories, meeting people, how much those traditional stories have translated into her cultural and her scientific life. So braiding sweetgrass is a beautiful um, star in a constellation of books that I've been enjoying recently. I would also strongly suggest another book called Black Faces in White, or White Spaces, Black Faces, White Spaces by... Um, Oh my gosh, I can't believe that I'm missing out the name. It'll come back. Um, uh, <laughs> uh, I feel awful. Okay, no, no, no. We will, we will include that as part of the Black podcast. Faces, I will. Spaces. And then one podcast. I would suggest listening to a podcast called All My Relations, which is indigenous people explaining different cultures and their perspective into everyday things uh but all my relations is a is a beautiful um it's a beautiful podcast black faces white spaces the author is uh, an african-american scholar from berkeley uh dr carolyn finn there we go yes excellent the, the sweetgrass has has a, has a really interesting story it kind of word of mouth its way onto the new york times bestseller yes. list so i'm Looking forward to getting that one in my bookshelf shortly. All right, Sergio, I have double-checked my checklist, and we've covered all the bases. Is there anything that I didn't talk about that you would like to share with people? I would say that throughout all these stories that we've been sharing, throughout my personal experience and gathering from other people, one of the things that I like to share that I've put myself into is step out of your comfort zone is challenge the status quo challenge the narrative it doesn't mean drive at a higher speed than the speed limit it doesn't mean don't respect the rules um, it might mean break the rules here and there but mostly is um, is me saying I used to have a career in conservation where I had a beautiful office at a great organization in a beautiful setting. I had a budget, I had research, I had people helping me. That was also a dream, but at some point that was too comfortable for me. I decided to step out of that comfort, comfortable place because whereas I was comfortable, I saw people like me who were not. And for, for them to advance, I needed to be visible and change what I was doing. So step out of your comfort zone for yourself, for your families, or for your community, or for a community that you want to learn from. Uh, learn directly from knowledge holders. I have more and more read less books and attended more indigenous uh, um, uh, gatherings and events. From Indigenous Peoples Day to... Uh, not to mix, but Black History Month, to many other events that are uh, raising awareness about other issues and other communities that we regularly don't hear about. Learn about missing and missing and murdered indigenous women and the crisis that we are going through, not only in the United States, but also in Canada, and to be quite honest, also in Mexico. Um, learn about other issues and learn how to connect and why they matter in your community. Um, so, so when you're asked or when you can be a role model or when you can share an example, you will have that story. And learn how to tell stories. And you know what? I'm pretty sure I've never thought about this, but I, 
I'm realizing that you can tell stories through music. So tell stories through your music. Tell stories through your sounds and through your experiences and share them with the world and find and amplify a community. And once you have a following, pass the mic to somebody else to share their experience. Let somebody else tell their story. Uh, help somebody else share their their knowledge, uh, and that way you're creating a network. We don't. We, I'm not expecting the one who's gonna save us. There's not gonna be one person who will save us all. We are all going to save us all. So we need to cast an, a wide net uh, for more people to be part of our movement, whatever our movement are is. And I'm really thankful you're in Tucson. I feel lucky that I, we can do this conversation in person. And I'm really looking forward to seeing where your podcast goes. I'm ready to share it. Excellent. Sergio, I, this has been an amazing hour thank and a half. So, so thank you so much. Yeah. And um, keep up the great work, man. I will try. Yeah. I, you know, uh, what moves me is making my parents proud. They, they don't know 80% of the things I'm doing, and yet I feel comfortable that if they could see and understand and hear a lot of these things, they would like it. My parent, my grandparents would be proud. So I'm trying to uh, make my ancestors proud, and I'm trying to be an ancestor in training of whom the future generations might be able to talk and say, that crazy person, he did a couple of things right. And I think that's one of the things within our music community yes. is, is we recognize a, a connection that's beyond, hey, I'm up here playing guitar and singing today. Those songs are about the human condition, the condition of cultures, lands, and love, and art, and whatever it is, it's, it's all there for us. And, uh, you know, sometimes, you get caught up in your day-to-day. -day. Me, 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 me. It's, we're, we're all part of something that's so much bigger. Thanks for listening to this edition of the Musicians Saving Our Home Planet podcast. Our mission is to educate and raise awareness about issues concerning our environment. Please visit our Facebook page to learn what you can do to save our home planet. Wishing you all the best till we meet again on our next episode. And thanks for doing your part to save our home planet.